Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The word of the Lord. Well, as I said, a very good morning. My name is Matthew. Um, I work up at Truro Anglican Church, not far from here. I've been in the United States for about 10 years now, so um, this is now my home. Even though I have a British accent, um, I now consider myself part of this great country. I'm on my way to becoming a citizen. Isn't that good news? <laughs> oh. So as Johnny said, we are in the third week of Advent. And Advent is a season of expectation, and it is the church, that's us, remembering, calling to mind something, and the Latin word Advent can mean arrival, but it can also mean coming. So something that is already arrived, but something that is coming. It's part of the church calendar, and that is the way the church organizes its year and over the centuries has organized it in a way that calls to mind the most important parts of the Christian story. It's a bit like the Oscars. It comes around once a year, various things, and if you look hard at the Oscars, you'll see what's really important 
to the film industry. Isn't that true? And Advent is a moment in the year where we're looking at one aspect of the Christian story that is extremely important. And I've really enjoyed uh, listening to some of the talks. I thoroughly enjoyed Johnny's uh, talk last week. You are very fortunate to have a gifted expositor of the gospel. In fact, Johnny, you did such a good job last week, I don't think I've got anything left to say. (laughs) But I'm still learning things about the Christian faith. I'm still learning. And one of the things I've learned only last week is that this season, Advent, is in the church calendar. It's a penitential season. It's a bit like Lent. You know Lent, that season leading up to Easter, where you give up really important first world privileges like chocolate and replace them with things like prayer and reflection. That's the idea. And Advent is another penitential season. When I think about Christmas, the only sort of sorry that I tend to do is, oh, I had too much to drink last night and ate a few too many mince pies, and this morning I'm really sorry. (laughs) But actually, Advent is a penitential season. It's an invitation to us as individuals and as a church to reflect deeply, to think deeply, and maybe do a little bit of even saying sorry for a few things. Advent is, in that sense, designed for us. We're not designed for Advent. Advent is designed for us. And I want to take the opportunity this morning in Advent to reflect on one of the Bible's great men, John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist because like many of the disciples and many of the great men of the Bible, he's very human. John the Baptist called Israel to reflect and consider changing the way they were doing things. And I'm going to look this morning at one of the most interesting moments in this most interesting of men's lives. Because John the Baptist was the one, was he not, who confidently came and proclaimed to Israel, here is your Messiah. The one that you've been expecting, he's here. Full of confidence, John the Baptist announces that. And yet, a few months later, as we read this morning, we find John the Baptist in prison, facing death, and facing some kind of crisis of confidence. And he asks this sort of extraordinary question. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? And the question is, why does this odd, embarrassing moment, because it certainly doesn't build John the Baptist up, why would the gospel writer Matthew record this moment? And what I want to suggest this morning is it deals with our problem of expectation with Jesus. Most of us, I want to suggest, have a problem with our expectation with Jesus. So I want to look at that a little bit this morning. Jesus spent a lot of his ministry dealing with people's expectations of him, their wrong expectations of him. And I hope we're going to see that it's really important what you expect. It's super important. Because if you're expecting the wrong thing at Christmas, then you might miss the value of the gift that's waiting there for you under the tree. Shall we pray? And then we'll give a go. I'll have a go at this. Father God, this morning, we pray for the gift of your Spirit that as we look at your scriptures, as we retell the stories, some of which 
we have heard many times, sometimes things we've never heard before, but it would be you, Lord, who is most present, and Jesus, you would be our teacher, our rabbi this morning, that it would be your voice that is heard loudest. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, you've got to love John the Baptist. He's a wild man, living in the desert, eating whatever was available, locusts and wild honey. He's a kind of Bear Grylls of his day. You know Bear Grylls? He's a confronter of the religious thrill-seekers who see him as some sort of curiosity. He's baptizing folk in the River Jordan, and he greets these religious curiosity-seekers with words dripping with sarcasm. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? John is supremely confident, and he is the one, he is the one who brings to an end a 400-year wait. Because if you look at the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's about four to 500 years. And at the end of the Old Testament, you get a prophet by the name of Malachi, and at the end of the, letter, uh, the book of Malachi, you get these words recorded, God speaking through Malachi, and God says this, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So in the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi says, look, or God through Malachi rather says, I'm going to send Elijah to you. Imagine what the listeners of the time must have said, no, 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 Elijah's dead. He's gone. No, no. God says, I'm going to send Elijah to you, and he will announce the coming of the day of the Lord. This was Israel's expectation, that there would come a day where God, as it were, came back. And then you get from Malachi to the New Testament, 400 years. This extraordinary sort of pregnant pause. Nothing happens. And then John comes. This is Jesus' cousin. John is Jesus' cousin, born about the same time as Jesus. His mother, when he was being born by his mother, and Jesus comes with him in Mary's womb, John reportedly leapt in the womb. And Jesus himself recognized John's extraordinary role, as we read this morning. If you're willing to accept it, Jesus says, he is the Elijah. He's the one we've been waiting for 400 years for. He's the Elijah who was to come. This is an extraordinary man, Jesus said. I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But now... We meet John again in prison, and he's been arrested by King Herod. He's facing death. John, who is a prophet, does what all prophet and truth-tellers do. Do you, never know, do you know some truth-tellers in your life? Have you got a truth-teller in your family? You know how they always just have to say that thing? They just have to say it. Myself and my wife, we're both truth-tellers. It's really difficult. When there's a disagreement, we both just have to say whatever it is that needs to be said. John is a truth-teller, he's a prophet, and Herod has married his brother's wife. So John says, that ain't right. You can't marry your brother's wife. And Herod takes offense, sticks John in prison, and John is now almost certainly facing death, and he will, in the end, be executed. 
And there in the prison cell, in the silence and aching loneliness of a prison cell, out of John's heart, a question wells up inside him. Perhaps it's the sort of question that might have welled up inside of us in a difficult moment, a hard moment in life, when we felt most imprisoned by our circumstances, most angry, let down. And John asks this, are, are you the one? Jesus, are, are you who you say you are? Are you who the church says you are, Jesus? Where are you? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And behind that question, like all human questions, are a number of assumptions about life, what it's supposed to be like, and what we expect from it. And the problem of human expectation is one that Jesus has to wrestle with throughout his entire ministry. Jesus knew that people were getting involved with what he was doing for all sorts of reasons, not all of them very good. Back in my church in London, there was a man who I loved dearly. His uh, name was Jamie, and Jamie was a street evangelist. I'm not a street evangelist. I find street evangelism awkward and embarrassing and difficult, but he was a street evangelist. And he loved to tell this story about how he got um, uh, involved with train spotting. He was a train spotter. You know what train spotting is? You go and you look and you see uh, uh, the trains that are passing through train stations and you write in a little book, you write their numbers down. Sound like fun? <laughs> Not really. Not really a lot of fun. But he tells how he got involved with that. He says he was living, and I always forget which city it was, but I think it's Nottingham. Nottingham is a sort of Midland city in England. And uh, one day he's walking, perhaps it's a cold sort of fall day, winter, early winter day like this, with a sort of parker on, his hood, hoodie pulled over himself, cold English rain beating down. And some friends run past him. And as they run past him, they just yell, Kudus at the Vic! Kudus at the Vic! And he said, before he knew where he was, he was running with them. And he's thinking, who's Kudu? And what's the Vic? <laughs> he had no idea what they were doing, but there was an excitement. There was something going on. Something was happening. So he's running and he's running. And as they get closer to where their destination, he realizes, oh, the Vic is a Victoria station. And then he finds out Kudu is a train. And his friends were train spotting, and they were excited because this is a very rare train. And that's, he said, how he got involved with train spotting. And there were a lot of people around Jesus at the time of Jesus who got involved with what Jesus was doing for all sorts of reasons, many of them not very good. There were crowds gathering. Jesus was doing healings. People just came. They got excited. But with them, as they came, they brought all sorts of expectations. All sorts of expectations of who Jesus would be for them. So I want to spend a little time now just looking at three possible expectations that John might have carried, John the Baptist, that in the end he was disappointed by. Because behind John's question in prison, Jesus, are you the one? Are you? Or should we expect somebody else? There are a number of possible 
explanations for why he might ask that question. And scholars have wondered over centuries, why? Why does John have this moment of crisis? So I want to look at three expectations. The first expectation of Jesus, we're going to get a flat no. The second of expectation of Jesus, we're going to get a yes and no. And the third expectation is the only one where we get a yes and amen. You see, there was at the time of Jesus an expectation, and I'm sorry for the obvious inference here, that Jesus the Messiah would make Israel great again. That was a very current expectation of Messiahship, that the Messiah who came would be the one who kicked the Romans out and made Israel great again. And it is possible, and some scholars have posited this as a possibility, that John had that expectation of his friend Jesus. There were a group around particularly who were identified with this hope. They were called the Zealots. And the Zealots were, in, in essence, praying and hoping for a superman, a superhero. Why do I say a superhero? Because superheroes bring justice to the world, don't they? That's what superheroes do. But here's the important thing about superheroes. Superheroes do things the way that you and I would do if we only had their superpowers. So superheroes are an extension of you and I. They're kind of superhumans, and they would do things exactly as if we had the power, we would give, uh, give it a shot. And you cannot read the gospel and fail to see that Jesus categorically rejects superhero-dom. He rejects out of hand the way that you or I would do things. At the beginning and at the end of the ministry, you see this very, very clearly. Do you remember, after Jesus has spent a little time with John the Baptist, he is sent out into the desert by the Spirit. Do you remember that? Do you remember who he meets out in the desert, in the wilderness? Satan. And do you remember what Satan tempts Jesus with, using the words or slightly misusing the words of Scripture? In essence, and I'm not going to look at this in depth, but in essence, Jesus tem- uh, sorry, Satan tempts Jesus with power, popularity, and prestige. Satan never says to Jesus, oh, don't bring justice to the world. He says, no, you can do that. You can have your justice project. You can make things better. You can heal people. You can do all that, but just do it in my way. Just come and do it in the way of the world. Come and do it in the way that I would do things. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way that I'm going to do things. And then right at the end of the ministry's ministry, do you remember Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's been praying, not my will, but thy will be done. And then the soldiers come. And do you remember Peter, what Peter says to him as the soldiers come? Jesus, we can take these guys on. Give us a sword. Give us an army. We can take these guys on. And Jesus says, no, no. No, my kingdom is not of this world. Can I make this any clearer, Jesus said? The way that the world would do things, that's not my way. It's not saying that his kingdom will not impact the world, but it's saying that his kingdom cannot be shaped 
by the expectations of the world, its power systems, its way of doing things. He utterly rejects that. It's not business as usual. And in the passage we read this morning, we see Jesus make this statement. It's another statement which has been much argued about. He says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, John the Baptist represented a kind of old way of doing things, an old way of thinking. The kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. What's Jesus saying? He seems to be saying there's been a lot of huffing and puffing and trying to do things in the old way, but not anymore. I'm bringing another kind of kingdom, a very different. And much of Jesus' teaching is trying to help people understanding, help people to understand just how different this kingdom he's bringing is. So if your and my expectation of Jesus is for some sort of superhero, a strong man, or that his followers should behave and act like supermen and superwomen, for the good of the world, of course, then your expectation is straightforwardly wrong. And at some point, you'll get a flat no from Jesus. And if we don't know that, when we get that no, we'll find ourselves asking, like John, Jesus, are you the one? Or should we expect somebody else? But there's a second possibility that lies behind John's question, and it's a much more human one. Because there's a tremendous irony when um, John sends his message through his disciples, Jesus, are you the one, or should we expect somebody else? Jesus responds like this, tell John, go back and report to him what you hear and see, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And that's an allusion to a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 61, which he also quotes at the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. The Spirit of God, the Sovereign Lord, is on me because God has anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, and announce freedom to the captives and pardon for all prisoners. There's John sitting in prison. Jesus, where are you? Where's my freedom? Where's the kingdom? I'm facing death here, Jesus. And it's interesting that Matthew, the gospel writer, he leaves those parts out. He doesn't mention prisoners. Is that an unconscious oversight? Jesus, don't you know that I'm in prison in my life? Don't you understand, Jesus, what I'm struggling with? Don't you see when things are going wrong that I need you, Jesus? Where are you? Where are you, Jesus? Who has not asked that question? Faced a moment in life. If your answer is, I've never met that question, I would humbly suggest to you, you're being dishonest with me. At some point, we're all going to feel that moment where we ask on a personal level, level, why, Jesus, are you not helping me out of the situation that I've found myself in, whether through my fault or through the fault of others? It doesn't matter. So what's the answer to that expectation? Is that a fair expectation, that Jesus should get me out of whatever prison I found myself in? Is that fair? And I think to that expectation, Jesus will give us a, well, yes and no. Yes and no. Because we're dealing here with the problem of the overlap of the kingdoms, and Johnny talked about this last week. 
Yes, yes, I can tell you in my story of faith, if you want to come and have a coffee with me, I can tell you about what Matthew was like before he came to faith in Jesus, age 32, and I can tell you what he has become after, and it is night and day. And I grew up in a very secular city, London, and in London, most people don't go to church, so if you were in church, really, it was quite exceptional, and it meant that it, being part of a thriving church, there were lots of people coming in who had no experience of church. I saw lots of transformations of lives. I saw lots of people being set free from all sorts of things, personal, financial, all sorts of situations, all sorts of healings. Yes, 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 Jesus is a personal Savior. He really is. He really is. And as you go on and read from the Gospels into the book of Acts, the record of the early church, you see the work of Jesus and the Spirit. People are being healed. People are being set free from prisons. So yes, yes, it's a fair expectation to say, Jesus, you can meet me where I am and set me free and heal me. But there are also people in the Gospels who Jesus doesn't heal. Isn't that right? There are times when it seems as if it was possible that Jesus can't do what he's supposed to do, or even won't, and many of his closest disciples will die in prison and being executed. And John really is the first, if you will, of those. There are just times when we're not going to see the healing, if you will, the salvation that we hope for and expect. I attended about two weeks ago a funeral um, of uh, a young boy, age 14, he uh, was part of just a wonderful family, he deeply loved God, uh, one of those families that create a sort of beautiful environment for their children. There was nothing that anybody had seen in this boy, age 14, that gave any hint of what was to come, nothing. And then there was a gun, and now he's dead, probable suicide. And it was just one of those moments where you saw an entire church, a church like this, maybe a bit bigger than this, not much, where a whole community cried out, how is this possible? Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? How can this be? And I went down to the memorial service, and there were many people who got up and s to speak, but there was one preacher who gave me an image that helped me because I couldn't understand it. And it's one of those moments that all pastors dread when you get that telephone call and you hear something like that and you have no words to say. Your bluff has been called. All your Christian theology and Christian speak flies out the window. What do you say to a family like that? So I went down to the memorial service and at the memorial service, one of the people who got up to speak, he, he pointed us to an image that I found really helpful. And the image was of a sculpture by Michelangelo. You know Michelangelo, the classical sculptor, sculptor. And Michelangelo created this sculpture. It's a very, very beautiful. I would look it up online. You can find it. Called the Pieta. And it's an image of Mary, Jesus' mother, after Jesus has been crucified and has suffered on the cross. And she holds Jesus in one hand like this, full of grief for her son, this is her son. It's not God in that sense. It's her son who has died and suffered. So in her right hand, she holds the suffering of the world, if you will. But her left hand 
is like this, open. Open as if in prayer. Open to God. And Michelangelo deliberately portrayed her holding in herself that almost unbearable tension. That to live as a Christian is to live in the tension between the kingdom now but not yet. It is a guarantee, if we are to listen to Jesus, that we will have to hold suffering at some point. And in those moments, we'll be asking questions, all sorts of questions. Jesus, are you the one? But at that same moment, we need to keep our hand open to God, to God's will, to the mystery of His purposes in the world. And if we don't know that as Christians, when really tough times come, we will find ourselves asking the question that John the Baptist asked. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we expect someone or something else? But you know, we're talking about kings and kingdoms. We sang about the king of kings. And I really want to end with this. Is Jesus' kingdom going to look like the kingdoms of this world flat? No, if you're hoping for that, you're going to be disappointed. Is Jesus going to save you? Yes and no. Yes, ultimately, absolutely. That is his will. We need to hold that. But is it always going to look like that in this world? No. We're going to need to hold the suffering of the world. But Jesus spoke about the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom principally because, I believe, people were so confused about the kingdom that he was bringing. So he spends more time in the New Testament speaking about the kingdom of God than anything else. Nothing else comes near it. The kingdom of God. I need to tell you again, this is what it's like. Don't expect this, expect that. Don't expect this, expect that. But behind that word kingdom is, of course, the assumption that there's going to be a king. And I know this is hard to hear from somebody with a British accent. But you guys, you need a king. Maybe especially now, I don't know. What do you think? You need a king. Oh, I know, that's all biblical stuff. I get it, I get it. But not really, right? I like to live my life my own way. Make my own choices. We're free, we're independent. We fought in this country for our freedom from kings. Didn't we? Yes? I've been watching, have you been watching? I thoroughly recommend there's a Netflix series called Monica, uh, the, the Crown. Have you seen that? You haven't watched it? See The Crown. It's a fantastic series about the British monarchy. The underlying sort of theme is darkness. This monarchy thing, this crown, crushes people. It crushes families. It crushes Prince Philip and his relationship to Elizabeth. It crushes Elizabeth and her relationship to her sister Margaret. This is a dark, heavy thing. Human monarchy. But in the very, very first, probably, written document that we have of the Christian faith, probably written maybe 20 years or so after Jesus' death, it's recorded in the letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. He says, using this hymn, which was probably doing the rounds a bit like some of the things that Ryan sings, you know, Imagine it as a song that Ryan has written, something like that. 
And Paul says, just quoting this, this is how we're supposed to think about things. This is how our attitude is supposed to be. This is what our mindset needs to be. Because, you see, may our attitude, our mindset, be that of Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, no power, no popularity, no prestige, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He's going to suffer like we suffer. He's going to hold our suffering as we hold our suffering. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But therefore, God exalted him and made him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That's what you do with kings. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, King. So much of Jesus' teaching is really pointing to himself, helping people to understand, to get through their malformed expectations, to turn their gaze away from other kinds of hopes, and to point their gaze on him as King, as Lord. And it's wonderful to have Jesus as a king. Because Jesus is not like the British monarchy. His kingship is utterly other. And the great expectation that Israel carried, and then the church carried, and now you as a church carried, is that if, when we make Jesus Christ our king, our Lord, we will find our identity, our freedom, our hope. And that's what the church is for, is to help us do that. It's not easy. It's not easy. If I were to give you a billion-dollar check, assuming that I was good for a billion dollars, would you be, as soon as you got that check in your hand, a billionaire, yes or no? Yes and no. <laughs> Technically, yes, you're a billionaire. You've got a billion dollars. Do you know how to live as a billionaire? Do you know what to do with a billion dollars? No. It's going to take time to understand what it is like to live like that. The moment, the day, if you had a day or if it was something that came over time, that you said a prayer in whatever form it came, comes, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's my king. I'm not going to have another one. Did he become your king, yes or no? Yes, he did. Do you know what that means? No. I'm learning very slowly, very slowly, what it means to live with Jesus as your Lord. I've just started a new thing. I call it my iPhone spirituality. I found some church bells as a ringtone on my iPhone. So now I set three alarms in the day. Three times, my phone goes off with church bells. And every time it does, I try to stop whatever I'm doing, whatever it is, shouting at the kids, you know, that kind of thing. Whatever it is, I stop. And I just ask myself a couple of questions. One of those questions is, Jesus, how are you 
Lord, now, right now, right now in this moment, whatever it is, how, Jesus, are you being Lord of my anxiety, my fear, my struggling, my striving, whatever it is, how, Jesus, are you Lord? Do you know what? It's been kind of transformational. I'm even getting my wife to begin to do it now. The great journey of Christian discipleship, and this is what this season is about, to bring us back into a place as a church. Advent is a penitential season. It's a moment where we can think again, is to reflect deeply and think, what does it mean to live with Jesus as my King, my Lord? I'm going to finish with a prayer. I'm going to pray for all of us, but particularly for anyone who's never really said in, the, in, the, in their heart or however you want to express, this, express it, Jesus, I, I want you to be Lord. I'm fed up with trying to be king of my own life, of my own work, my own family, whatever it is. I'm fed up. I've had enough. I'm ready for another kind of kingship. Some of you may never have ever prayed that. If you, if you haven't, I'm going to invite you to do that. If you prayed it many times, this may be familiar to you. Then it's just another opportunity to bring before God the things that you are actually controlling, the good things and the bad things. Some of it's going well, some of it's not. And say, I invite you, Jesus, to be Lord, to be Lord of that. You see, the more we live into and expect the lordship of Jesus in our life, over every part of our lives, our families, our workplaces, our finances, our churches, the freer we'll be. And if we're free, we'll be happy. And who doesn't want to be happy at Christmas? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that on the cross you made it possible for ha to have a completely different kind of relationship with you. That on the cross you ended that painful, painful separation. And now because of that, because of your great suffering, you poured out your Spirit on all flesh, on all of us, so, Lord, as we pray, would it be your spirit welling up in us that is praying? And Jesus, we're sorry. I'm sorry for the places and times in my life where I'm making myself king, where I'm trying to be Lord. I'm sorry for the harm that I've done when I do that, even if my intentions were good. I'm sorry that I put myself in your place. Thank you, Lord, that you came to be a completely different kind of king. The kind of king that would die for me, that would bring me freedom, give me back my true identity, my true worth, who would love me more than I can imagine. Please, Jesus, would you be Lord? Would you be Lord 
in every part of my life. And we pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.